passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this weekend is a very special weekend for my family. Um, we are, uh, after uh, sometime this afternoon, we're going to celebrate the first birthday of uh, our son, Silas James. And uh, when Silas was born about a year ago, uh, and we decided to name him Silas James, we had quite a few people who came up to us and, and asked us where that name came from and why we decided on that name. And so we, we told him, well, the name Silas, uh, it comes from the Bible. And as many of you are aware, Silas is the name of one of Paul's missionary partners uh, and, and kind of takes a background role. And he, he exudes this humble heart, uh, this desire to see God glorified and a desire to do anything necessary to further the kingdom of God. And that was really our prayer for Silas. We wanted that to be uh, his same sort of character. And so that's where the name Silas comes from. The name James, also from the New Testament. Uh, and several people are named James in the New Testament, but one of the most famous is probably uh, James the Great is what people called him. Uh, he was a uh, very bold uh, church leader in Jerusalem, and uh, he, he, pro- he proclaimed the gospel fearlessly in the face of great opposition, uh, even eventually cost him his life. And we desired that our son uh, Silas James would exude that same sort of character as well, as a, as a man who would both be humble and willing to work behind the scenes and yet was also fearless in proclaiming the gospel. Names can be significant. We like to name people after family members, after our role models. Names can be significant to us. But as much import as we give them today, names and the importance of names pale in comparison to the importance of names in ancient times. In ancient times, a name was more than just a way to identify you. It was actually a part of your identity. It was a part of who you were. That's why Adam, the first human to ever live, was named Adam. The Hebrew word for ground, for dirt, is Adamah. And so this is a wordplay, a very tangible way of reminding Adam, as well as every single human to come after, that they are creatures, that we are created beings, and God himself is uncreated. Same thing is true of Adam's wife, Eve. Eve refers to the fact that she is mother, the mother of all living humans, and just this recognition of, of who she is is a part of her identity. This is found throughout the Old Testament. It's even found in the New Testament. Jesus, his name Yeshua, means the Lord saves. What a perfect name for Jesus. You see, in ancient times, names reflected the important part of who you were. And so, Crystal and I, uh, in addition to just naming Silas, Silas, because of uh, his, uh, because of these people in the, in the New Testament decided, well, let's go ahead and take a look at what Silas's name actually means. And so we, we did some research and we pulled out a couple dictionaries, uh, some biblical dictionaries to, to find Silas's name. And I have to tell you that we were extremely, extremely biblical as we were trying to figure out the identity 
of, of Silas and, and who he is. And, and if you've heard this before, don't spoil it. But can anyone guess what the name Silas means? The literal meaning of Silas. Any guesses? I'm, I'm actually asking you. Okay, that, that's fine. Uh, I, I, I know that you didn't come prepared for that. Silas... The third member of our family, that word Silas means three. My wife and I did a wonderful job of being biblical and naming him as a part of his identity, as a third member of our family. And, and even though that's kind of a little silly, it, it recognizes how important names are to our identity in the biblical times. This morning's passage is all about names. It's not just a a bunch of trivia for Bible trivia night. It is much more significant than that because the names actually tell us about what's going on in the lives of Rebecca, or excuse me, of Rachel and of Leah and of Jacob during this time. And as we glimpse at these names, we get to see a bit of what's going on in their lives. We get to see a bit of the turmoil that's going on in their hearts and in their family as well. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be in Genesis 29 and 30 this morning. And just a recap, last time we were in Genesis, two weeks ago, we looked at the marriage of Jacob and Rachel, or Jacob and Leah, or or Jacob and Rachel and Leah, uh, as we spent some time looking at uh, Genesis 29. Before that, Jacob was seen as a schemer. He was a man who only cared about himself. He was a man who was willing to take advantage of anyone and everyone to get himself ahead. And then in Genesis 29, he encounters his uncle Laban. Laban was a trickster as well, was a deceiver as well, and tricked Jacob into spending 14 years as a virtual slave for his wife. And all of this in Genesis 29 came right after... Jacob encountered God in Genesis 28. And in Genesis 28, God says to Jacob, I will be with you forever. I will be with you forever. Right after God says that, Jacob spends 14 years in pain and in hardship and frustration because of his uncle. We can look at that and we can say, well, what's going on here? Did God said, I will be with you, but then there's some fine print here? Of course not. Over 14 painful years, Jacob learned a lesson that many of us have unfortunately learned in our lives as well. God uses affliction to shape us, to form us, to make us more like him. And if you are hurting right now, I want you to be assured that you're pain is not meaningless, provided you hold on to God in the midst of it. It doesn't matter how big your pain may be or how small it may be in the grand scheme of things, God can and does use our affliction to make us more like him. God can and does use the affliction of 14 years of pain and misery to form Jacob into the father of Israel. God can and does use the momentary affliction of hurtful words spoken by friends to you today to make you more like him. God can use job loss. God can use death, betrayal, criticism, cancer, infertility, and a thousand other things that are part of this fallen world 
to make us more like him. To mold us more into his image. He did that with Jacob. He does that with us. As we're going to see this morning, he does that with Leah and Rachel. You see, the reality is a lot of times we don't see how God is at work in the midst of the affliction. We don't see how God is at work in the midst of the pain. But scripture assures us that we can be utterly confident in God. We can be utterly confident that God is working in us. He is molding us and he is shaping us. This morning we're going to see how he does that in Leah's life. How he does that in Rachel's life. All of this comes in the aftermath of Laban's deceit. After Laban leaves his son-in-law's family a mess. As we look at this family, we're going to see bitterness. We're going to see jealousy, envy, strife, power struggles. All of these things are the norm for this family. But God is at work. As we look at this passage, we're going to see how God is at work really on two levels. First, we're going to see how God is at work specifically in the lives of Leah and Rachel, making them more like him. We're going to see how God is using their afflictions to make him more like make them more like him. So that's the surface level. But under the surface, as we look deeper, we want to keep our eyes open for how God is using this mess of a family. This family that really has no admirable person in it. And how he's using that family for good. How he uses that family not just for their own good, not just for the good of their extended family, for their region, but eventually how God uses this messed up, twisted, depraved family for the good of every tribe and every tongue and language and nation on the face of the planet. You see, God uses affliction for good. He might not use your affliction in the grand scheme and the grand scale that he uses the affliction that, that Leah and Rachel suffer here, but God can and God does bring good out of the ashes of your affliction. As we approach God's word, let's pray one more time. Father, we confess that you are good even though the world often screams and shouts otherwise. Lord, we, we trust that you are sovereign, that you are in control that you are at work in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our hardship, and in the midst of our affliction. And so, Father, we ask that even now you would come and that you would speak to us through your Spirit. God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would be pointing us toward you, that you would be convicting us of areas where we are needing conviction, that you would comfort us in areas where we are needing comfort. And Father, that we would be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, please follow along as I read aloud, starting in Genesis 29, verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband 
will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This passage comes right on the heels of the previous passage that ends with this phrase. So Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. That's important for us. So Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. That's important for us because it defines what the word hate here means. Hate doesn't necessarily refer to an actual hatred when we think of the word hate. Now, surely there is some sort of bitterness here between Jacob and Leah. After all, Leah was a willing part of Laban's deception of Jacob. And in one sense, Leah is getting exactly what she deserves for her part in stealing Rachel's husband. She's getting exactly what she deserves from the world's perspective. And that's what makes it so astonishing that God shows her grace anyway. You see, this is Leah, the one who may be at fault, the one who may be blamed for being hated, but that doesn't matter to God. He has compassion on her anyway. And I just, I just rejoice that that's the way that God works. That God doesn't just have mercy for those who are forgiving, but he has mercy for those especially who are unworthy of his grace and his mercy. In fact, if it was only mercy available for those who deserved it, the list in the book of life would be a very short list. I know my name would be left off of it. God's mercy knows no bounds. And so he has mercy on this despised and lowly Leah and gives her a son. And if your Bible has footnotes, I encourage you to spend some time reading what each of these names means. And spend some time looking at the significance of these names because they reveal to us a great deal about despair. About the longings of their hearts. The name Reuben, the name of her first son, literally means look. A son. It's a cry of desperation to her husband, asking him, pleading him for affection. Look, I've provided you with a son. Perhaps now you will love me. But as the text tells us, Jacob is unmoved in his coldness toward Leah. But God answers Leah's prayer again and gives her a second son. She names him Simeon. This name sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for heard. God has heard her cries, her mourning, her, her affliction. And he has given her another son. Surely, Leah thinks, Jacob will love me now. After all, I provided him with two children. But again, she is met with nothing. And so God gives her a third son. She names the third son Levi, which literally just means attach. What a great name for a son. She thinks that after having three children to her sister's zero children, that she will now be attached to her husband. That her husband will surely love her now. But again, Jacob spurns her. I just want to pause here and think for a moment about the pain that Leah is going through. 
Leah has had three sons in her first three years of marriage to Jacob. And in this patriarchal society, and this is not what the Bible condones, it's just what the society was like back then. In a patriarchal society, women were not worth much more than vehicles for children. For sons specifically. And again, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is just talking about the culture that they lived in at that time. For all intents and purposes, Jacob has hit the jackpot with Leah. He's given her, she's given him three sons. It's all that she could expect, be expected to do during this time. And yet Jacob ignores her anyway. Now take a look at these names. What do they reveal to us about Leah's heart? I think it's clear that they reveal to us that all Leah wanted was to be loved by her husband. That's really all Leah wanted, to be loved by her husband. Growing up, she spent all of her time in the shadow of her younger, more beautiful sister. This is a woman who was insecure. This is a woman who felt incomplete until she felt the love of a man. This is a woman who would do anything for that man's affections. And Leah, this woman who is now taking care of a two-year-old, a one-year-old, and a newborn, experiences the pain of her husband not caring about her. In fact, her husband spending all of his time with her sister No wonder Leah despairs here. Her deepest longings are going unanswered. She is in great pain because her longings are left unanswered. But something happens between the third son and the fourth son. And the text doesn't tell us when or specifically what, but it's evident by the name of her fourth son. Something happens to Leah because she names her fourth son Judah, which simply means praise. For I will now praise the Lord. You see, for Leah, after years of vying for the affection of her husband, after years of failure, after years of seeking her identity in someone else, Leah gives up. Leah gives up in seeking her self-worth in someone else. She realizes the futility, the folly of trying to find her worth in Jacob and in Jacob's love. And so she turns to God. She turns to the only one who can give her that self-worth. And she praises God in the midst of the pain that she is experiencing. In the midst of the storm, for all intents and purposes, this is a single mom with four kids who are under four. She turns to God for hope and for help. But in naming her kids Reuben and Simeon and Levi, she's showing us the root of her problem and really the root of the problem within each and every one of us. You see, Leah's primary problem is not with Jacob. Her primary problem is with God. Leah has created an idol out of the elusive affection of her husband. Her life is now incomplete without this love. She is on an all-consuming search for it. And that love 
fails her. That love is left unsatisfied. Do you see the good of her affliction? Do you see the good that comes from her affliction? Because her idols are left unsatisfied, because her desire for her husband is left unsatisfied, she turns and she trusts God. The pain that she experienced was good in that sense because it turned her to God. Over and over she sought her worth in Jacob and over and over her idol spurned her, leaving her with nothing. And it's in the midst of this brokenness that she turns to God. And friends, it's in the midst of our brokenness that we realize that exact same thing. That God is enough. That God is enough for us. That the love of God is enough to help us endure the hardship, to help us endure the pain. That clinging to God in the midst of the pain will help us make it through. God became enough for Leah. I just want you to imagine... What would have happened if God would have answered her longings? If God would have given her the affection that she so much desired from Jacob, which, by the way, is a good thing. I'm not at all saying that that's a bad thing for her to want. If God had answered her desires, this idol that she had set up in her life to be loved by her husband, this idol probably would have never been toppled. If God would have given her her deepest longing... He would have been keeping her from her deepest need. Let me say that again. If God had given her her deepest longing, he would have been keeping her from her deepest need himself. God does the same thing for us as well. God uses affliction to get rid of our idols. The affliction that we experience is like the axe that God uses to hew wooden totems of misplaced affections to the ground. God uses affliction. Yes, it hurts, but it is for our good. And so ask yourself, what is your idol? One author describes your idol as whatever you need in your life in addition to God to make your life happy and good. Does that mean that you need financial security? Does that mean you need to be wanted and needed by others? Does that mean you need a big family in order to feel happy in this life. That might be your idol. Another author describes our idols as whatever we daydream about. You can follow your, your daydreams to wherever your idols are. It could be unfinished house projects. It could be vacation. It could be work itself, the busyness that you can't leave behind. Those things could be your idols. But here's the thing about idolatry. 99 times out of 100, our idols are not bad things. Our idols are not necessarily bad things. They are good things, good gifts from God that we instead turn into God himself. Vacation is not a bad thing. Being productive is not a bad thing. 
having a family, having financial security. These are not bad things. They are good things that we have a tendency into making into ultimate things, to making into idols themselves. You see, Leah was completely justified in wanting and desiring affection from her husband, but that desire became all-consuming. It became the only thing that she focused on, and she couldn't live without that desire until God ripped it out of her hands. And it was only then in the pain that she was able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord, even in the midst of the hurt, because God has used my pain for good. But as we continue this passage, we see that Leah isn't the only one who's struggling with deep-rooted idolatry. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she had bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's answer, anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of your womb? Then she said, Here is my silver servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Can you identify Rachel's idol here? What is Rachel's idol? If Leah's idol is the affection of her husband, what is Rachel's idol? We could say that it is having children, that she has set up an idol about her desire to have kids, but I think if you dig deeper, the idol is actually the exact same thing as Leah's. Her idol is her husband's affection. You see, after four years of Leah having child after child after child after child, Rachel is extremely jealous. She is desperate, and her urgency that she is feeling increases with each and every moment. By the time she gets to Judah, she is absolutely desperate. Because of the importance of having sons in the ancient world, Rachel thought that she was in danger of losing her husband to Leah. Of course, as we saw from the previous passage, this is completely irrational. Nothing that Leah can do will win Jacob over. Everything, every single thing that she does to court him is unsuccessful. But the way that Rachel acts shows us how irrational we can be when our idols are threatened. If Leah is an example of the painful blessing of starving our idols, then on the other hand, Rachel shows us the great lengths that we will go to in order to protect those same idols. Rachel was threatened by her sister. And so she demanded a child from Jacob. Of course, this is ridiculous. 
Jacob is very successful in getting Leah pregnant at this point. And Jacob points this out. He says, I'm not God. And he does this in a very unhelpful way. Unlike Isaac in Genesis 25, unlike his father, who committed to praying for his wife when she was faced with infertility, Jacob blames God. He blames God for the barrenness that his wife is experiencing instead of praying for her. And so Rachel, in this very, very uh, twisted and, and sick and unhealthy home, takes matters into her own hands in order to protect her idol. She decides to do the exact same thing that Sarah did over a hundred years earlier. She takes her servant and gives her servant to her husband to serve as a surrogate. Now, we don't need to spend time repeating the reasoning here. Long story short, what we see here is that her plot to protect her idol is successful. It looks like a success and a blessing because of God's hand. But the interesting thing is, God is not present in these verses. If you compare the story of Genesis 30, chapter 1, excuse me, verses 1 through 13, God is mysteriously absent at work. Compared to the story of Leah's children, in verses 31 through 35 of chapter 29, it starts with God opening her womb. The narrator is very clear that just because it looks like God has blessed this doesn't mean that God has blessed this. But then we get to not just Rachel, we get to Leah as well. And we see that Rachel's less than admirable actions, if you will, lead to less than admirable actions from Leah as well. And it seems like just as Leah has conquered her idol, just as Leah has let go of her desire, her need for her husband, she falls back into that trap. As I was studying for this passage this past week, I I was wrestling through, how do we balance this? How do we balance the end of chapter 29, which makes it look very clear that Leah conquers her idol. And then you get to chapter 30, and Leah is just as bad as Rachel in the thick of things. How do we reconcile this? And God said, well, Jordan, just look in the mirror. Look at how often you have victory over sin. And then you let your guard down and then you fall right back into it. You run right back to the idols that you once served. You can go days, months, years without falling to temptation. And then in a moment of weakness, you're right back at the beginning. This story is an example of how desperate we are for our idols. It is a mirror to each and every one of us. And it is a warning that we must be vigilant in our victory over sin. We must be vigilant that we should not put our guards down because sin will strike back. So don't grow weary in the fight. But even more than a warning, this passage is a reminder of God's undeserved grace and how undeserved each and every one of us is of God's grace. If you were to choose between Rachel and Leah, say which one deserves to be a part of God's plan of bringing salvation. And you looked at their, at their lives and you'd say, well, neither one of them is. And yet God uses them anyway. 
page after page after page of Genesis reminds us and shows us that God uses the undeserving. That God is gracious toward broken people. And he uses them as a part of his plan. As we finish this section, we see this brokenness continue, starting in verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may be with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the fields in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. We'll read the last part of this section here in a few moments. Reuben, very young at this time, finds some mandrakes. He brings them to his mother, Leah. And just to to help us understand what's going on here, in ancient times, mandrakes were associated with fertility. They were considered to be equivalent of a modern-day fertility drug. And so Rachel is desperate. No wonder. The one who has all of the children, who has no problem having kids, is the one who now has this fertility drug. And so she begs and pleads with Leah, hoping that she will get these mandrakes from her, that Leah will show compassion toward her so she can have what she really, really wants. Children. But Leah is unwilling to part with them without a return. And so Rachel agrees. It's a part of this bartering that she'll have a night with Jacob. And just take a moment and look how twisted and sick this family is. The beauty of marriage has been almost completely corrupted into a a moment, a bartering of borderline prostitution here. And ironically, it's not the one with the mandrakes, with the fertility drug that has a child. It is instead the one who is hated who has another son, and then has another son, and then has a daughter. Leah has three more children, two sons, one daughter, totaling seven compared to Rachel's zero children. Things couldn't be worse for Rachel. This is a woman who's struggling with infertility, who knows the pain of of seeing her family and, and friends have children, who amplifies that, who has a husband who has 11 other children with three other women, and he has given her nothing, that she has nothing. Let's take a look and and read these last few verses here. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Don't miss the beginning of this passage. God remembers her, and then God listens to her. At some point, Rachel is completely and utterly broken. 
At some point, she has stopped seeking from her husband what he cannot give her. At some point, she has stopped seeking from superstition what it cannot give her. And instead, she turns to the only one who can. She turns to God in prayer. You see, just like Leah did years earlier, she eventually came to the end of her idolatry after years of rejection. And she turns to God in prayer. And God hears those prayers. And God answers those prayers. And Rachel gives birth. And God uses the untold pain, the untold suffering of Rachel's experience, just like he used the untold pain and suffering of of Leah's experience to get them to the point where they finally turn to him. And friends, God does the exact same thing with us. God uses pain to get us to stop turning to ourselves, to stop turning to others, and to turn to him alone. It is only from the ashes of affliction that God can break the chains of our idolatry. And it is from the ashes of affliction that God brings good. God does this really in two ways. First, God uses affliction to form his people. God uses affliction to form his people. This really uh, is something we've we've covered multiple times, but it's, it's important for us to focus on. God uses affliction to make you more like him, if you let it. In ways that none of us would expect, God's grace for Leah is most clearly seen not in provision, but in affliction. His grace for her is most clearly seen not in the love of her husband, but in his rejection. For Rachel, God's grace is not most clearly seen in having children, but in her barrenness. And for you as well, God's grace is more often found in your affliction than in your provision. Because in the pain, rather than in the calm, God can bring good. And God can make you more like him. That's the first way that God uses affliction. The second way is this. God uses affliction to fulfill his plan. God uses affliction to fulfill his plan. Notice what God accomplishes in the grand story of the Bible. Through the affliction that Rachel and Leah experience here. He uses Leah's bitterness to bring Joseph. This son who God would use to save the entire known world from famine a generation later. God uses the lowly state of Leah to bring about the tribe of Levi. Moses was a descendant of Levi who saved the people of Israel out of Egypt. Levi was also the father of the ancestor of Aaron, the first high priest, and of all of the priests who came afterwards. But even more so... Leah is the ancestor of David. Judah, her son, is the ancestor of David and ultimately of the Messiah himself. God uses their affliction. God uses immorality. He uses evil. He uses hatred in this family to accomplish his purposes. Things that they couldn't see in the moment. And friends, God is doing the exact same thing in your affliction today as well. He is working in ways that you can't imagine to bring about good, 
for you, for your family, for those who are around you. All things work for good to line up with his perfect purposes for our lives, to spread the kingdom of God in our lives. It is from the ashes of affliction alone that God can bring good in our lives. It is from the ashes of affliction that God can break our idolatry and turn us to him alone. John Donne was a a poet from the late 1500s, uh, early 1600s, and one of his most famous poems is this poem, Batter My Heart. And this poem shows the, uh, the battle in our souls that each and every one of us probably experiences. It is the battle in our souls between wanting to love God, wanting to serve God, and yes, also chasing after all of these other idols, desiring things that aren't God, but we make them into God's ourselves. I want to just read this poem to you. It's, it's pretty short, recognizing it's in, it's in Old English. It's a very graphic poem of how God can use affliction to turn our hearts to him. It says this, Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me and bend your force to break blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another, do labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, I should defend, but is captive and proved weak and untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break the knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, Never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Notice the words here. Yet dearly I love you. John Donne recognizes, I love you, God. And then right after that, he says, I am betrothed unto your enemy. I worship other gods. Just like Rachel. Just like Jacob. Just like Leah just like each and every one of us. And so his prayer is that God would batter his heart, that God would knock him down, that he would use force to break him, to blow him, to burn him, and to make him new through all of those things. Friends, God often uses affliction to rid us of our love for false gods. God is good. God is good even in the midst of pain. We worship a God who is so good, who loves us so much that he refuses to give us our deepest desires sometimes because he wants to give us our deepest need himself. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the midst of the pain, even if we just come out of the pain, wherever we may be, we rejoice that you are good. We rejoice that you can use hardship and pain to make us more like you. Father, we do see that that is the chief end that you have for us, to become more and more like you. And so we pray that you would help us, that we would not waste our pain, our suffering, and our hardship but that we would be pointed to you in all of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.